Thou hast redeemed us, O Lord, in thy blood. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This comes from the introit to today's Mass, the Mass of the Solemnity of the Most Precious Blood of our Lord. And it's an important celebration for us, this solemnity. It is a celebration of the very price that our Lord paid for us, the price of our redemption. It is the very example of the greatest, uh, of the greatest example of our Lord's love for us. Our Lord, in his redemption of mankind, by the shedding of his blood, being infinite as he is, a drop sufficed to save all of mankind. Even a simple, just mere act of the will was enough. Yet our Lord, he wasn't going to stop there. He was going to give an example to all of us. He was going to make it clear just that his love had no bounds to it. It was truly infinite. And so instead of one drop of blood, he gave every drop of blood, showering forth from his wounds and most especially at the end from the wound in his sacred heart. And when we look upon the Gospels and the teachings that Christ gave us in our lives, we realize in reality that even though he has paid the price for our redemption, it is that same type of act, at least in spirit, that he calls us to in our own lives. Indeed, he calls us not to actually be crucified, that's probably not going to happen, but he calls us to imitate him in his actions. He calls us, first and foremost, above everything else, to imitate him in true charity, true love. This is, as we know, the highest of all of the virtues. As our Lord says, it covereth a multitude of sins. It is the law, the whole of the law and the prophets. Charity truly is to act like God. And he calls us to do so in a certain manner, taking up our cross, following after him, an action chosen freely by us and one that is truly self-sacrificing. We at the YAG yesterday talked a bit about this idea, but if they'll let me, I will continue on with the same theme. That self-sacrificing nature of love is where it is most truly found, where it is most particular to the Christian, where it is most virtuous for us. And our Lord, he gives us ample examples to follow after her, even beyond himself. He gives us the martyrs. He gives us the saints. And sometimes in a special miraculous mystical way he gives us even those who are to follow after him in bearing the same wounds the stigmatists and it's of this that I want to talk to you today not of those who lived long ago and are canonized saints like Saint Francis and Saint Catherine of Siena 
while very special in their own right, were passed by them for this moment. But today, I wanted to talk to you about a lesser known, but closer to home, stigmatist to all of us. Matt of Rose Farron of Woonsocket, Rhode Island, who was born merely at the beginning of the 20th century, not all that long ago. She, from her youth, was raised in a very pious French-speaking American family. Her mother had 15 children, each of whom she would dedicate to one decade of the rosary. Rose was number 10, and so, fittingly so for the future, she was to be dedicated to the crucifixion of Christ. As a young girl, she all of a sudden became very ill, found herself with great pain and paralysis in the right side of her body. They didn't know exactly what the cause of it was. The only thing they could point to as maybe being the culprit was that a while, shortly beforehand, she had been outside playing in a cold rain and that she had gotten a, a, a sickness after that. And maybe somehow it was connected, but they weren't sure and there was no means that they could take and they tried all that they could to alleviate the poor girl in her sufferings. Her paralysis grew worse, the pain grew stronger, and soon she was left to walk with the aid of crutches. And then as time went on, she, even the crutches were not enough, and for longer and longer periods, she was relegated to being stuck in bed. She said of this home confinement that it wasn't the pain or the paralysis that was the greatest of the sufferings, but the isolation of it all. One time she said in the summer, it was a beautiful summer day, she had the windows open and she was sick in bed. And she heard outside of her window the laughter of her sisters and a few of her schoolmates who were in their Sunday best preparing to get ready to go to Mass. As they waited there and talked and laughed, she could hear the joy of their conversation. And then she listened as it grew a little bit fainter and fainter until it disappeared. They had walked on and continued on to church, and she was left there by herself, unable to attend. She said that isolation was crushing to her. But she learned in time that it was meant to be a sacrifice for her to offer. So comes her lot in life. She, being home, suffers more. But in Woonsocket, the faithful suffer greatly. There is a literal schism there, and it was the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, that Woonsocket was part of. And in that diocese, there is a split that takes place. The bishop, a good holy man named Bishop Hickey, an Irishman, he realized that there's a problem in this church. There's not enough schools for people to go send their children to. 
Catholics need a good Catholic education. They need to ensure that the children have all of that they are that is required of them to learn both their regular learning for life and their faith. And yet there are hardly any English speaking schools. And so he makes a big drive to build and to employ enough people for these schools, calling on everybody, every church there. You need to donate. You need to give so we can furnish, so we can provide these schools for the children. But the French of the of the city of Woonsocket, they resisted this pledge. They resented the pledge. Their isolationism got the better of them, and they looked upon it and they realized, you know what? We have French schools that we built and paid for ourselves. Our children are able to go to school. Why do we have to also pay for the English-speaking children to go to school too, when our kids will not benefit from it? And that anger fostered, and soon they called upon each other to resist and to not contribute to it. And they called upon each other to, to turn away any of the donations of the church. And soon enough, their anger grew so deep and burning that a fraction of them began to began their own newspaper, a French-speaking newspaper called Le Centenal, and in it, they put all sorts of propaganda in order to ensure everybody falls in line with them in resisting this pledge. Moreover, they didn't stop at mere propaganda, but rather they inserted into it all sorts of calumny, lies against Bishop Hickey, accusing him of all sorts of horrible things. Bishop Hickey was extremely patient on his part, pleading, working with them, trying to get them to see his side and to do their part and to cease and desist in what they were writing. But in the end, none of them would hear of it and they dug their heels in deeper. And so he was left with one recourse only. He had to excommunicate 52 people who were intimately involved in this process. With that, the schism was formed and the crevasse grew deeper and wider. And no diplomacy was going to solve the problem in Woonsocket. It broke the heart of the bishop. All he could do was pray. All he could do was sacrifice. And yet he still knew it wasn't enough. He needed somebody especially devoted to this cause. And that's when he heard of this young girl, home, bedridden, and suffering so much in her ailments. He went to her bedside and asked to talk to her. Being welcomed in, he sat down by Rose and he began to talk to this teenage girl and explained to her, weeping, the problems in the church, weeping about the split that he can't figure out how to heal. And with that, in the end, he turns to her and he asks her a question. He says, will you suffer for the diocese, for the priests, and for all those I was obliged to punish? Rose, for her part, she's just a young teenage girl. She, in fact, is actually French. And so, therefore, naturally speaking, she desires to side with her own people on the issue. But she can also see the man before her, see his sincerity, see his 
that there is no duplicity in his heart and that he merely longs for the good of the church. And with that, that cross before her eyes, she agrees and says that she is willing to offer up all of her suffering for the good of the diocese. Well, suffering, she really and earnestly began to have. Her pain and her paralysis only grew worse, and in time, all of a sudden, miraculously, the wounds were increased to include those of our Lord's as well. Her feet and her hands bore the marks of the nails. Her body was covered in the marks of the scourging. Her shoulder afflicted with a deep wound that was incurred on our Lord from the carrying of the cross. Her heart with the mark of the piercing of the lance and her head surrounded by a crown of mystical thorns, all of which bled profusely, all of which were incredibly tender and sore, all of which contributed more to her suffering than merely the pain alone, because the humility of it all, being there stuck in bed and people hearing about it and wanted to come see her as if she was some sort of attraction, the humility of having to rely on other people to aid her several times a day, changing her bandages, changing her clothes, changing her bedding, all because she would bleed through everything. That is how much she would bleed from the stigmata. She did this for years, and in the end, her suffering was a great prayer heard by our Lord, and her prayer was answered, and all 52 of those who had split away from the church, found themselves humbly on their knees before Bishop Hickey himself, begging for his forgiveness and being granted it, and each one being returned to the bosom of the Holy Catholic Church. As time went on, Rose continued to, to suffer and applied it to other souls and to other needs. And one of the things, though, she prayed for was not that the pain go away, but rather that at least the outward appearance of it disappear, to save those from having to care for her by changing the linen so much and save those from coming who wanted to come and see her as that spectacle. Our Lord sort of granted her request in the end. He gave her, he made the, the blood stop and go away during most of the year. But every Friday and all of Holy Week, it would return and flow again. At one point, our Lord visited her and gave her a special blessing. He predicted her death. He told her, seven years from now, you shall die. And she started to do the math in her head and realized seven years from that time would make her 33. And just like our Lord himself, she would join him. And sure enough, seven years later, she passed on to her heavenly reward. Rose Farron was a true suffering soul and a stigmatist who was specially designated by God to do this great heroic action of saving souls and reuniting the church. God 
doesn't want us to look upon people like Rose Farron as merely incredible miracles. If we do only see that part of it, then we have missed the entire purpose of her stigmata. We have missed the entire purpose that these things were given to us by our Lord. If that were the case, he would hide it away and be secret about it. No, it is there to be an example for us. Not that we too will bear the marks of Christ. We know that is remarkably rare and a special privilege designated for only a true few in the entire history of the church. But we do realize that virtue is practiced there. And those virtues are common amongst all of us to be embraced and to be fostered and to be strengthened in us. It is the very example of following after our Lord and being willing on her part to actually shed her blood in the same manner as her Savior. It is the example she gives to us that we spiritually be willing to accept wounds, harm to us for the good of souls, to be a sacrifice. That we, in looking about ourselves, look for ways to imitate Christ's selfless love. Where do we find it? You find it if you look for it. It's there practically every single day if you are paying attention. Where then? It is found in those times when we are truly dry spiritually and yet the love of God which we are called to the highest point of, the primary point of our love, we find ourselves still falling down on our knees. We find ourselves still thumbing our beads, still rising up early and coming to that extra mass, still availing of ourselves to make sure that our time is spent well with our morning prayers, our spiritual reading, our evening prayers, and recalling our Lord to our mind throughout the day, even though there is no consolation necessarily attached to it. That imitation is found in the acts of charity that come to us day by day, oftentimes manifesting themselves in inconvenient ways, taking of our time, taking of our energy, put in place when it's not the most easy to do, or for a person whom, naturally speaking, is not the most easy to please or to serve. Yet therein is when it is most virtuous, the hard acts of charity, the ones we don't want to do. It is in the forgiveness of those who have wronged us, not because they have apologized, not because they are sorry, not because they have made some sort of act of amends or even act of kindness, not because they deserve it at all, but because we are called to forgive and to do so sincerely and from our hearts and as an act of the will. It is in the fulfillment of our daily duties when they are most drudged. It is in the various opportunities for virtue to be practiced when it is hard. Therein we find the secret little acts that add to our salvation. Therein we imitate our Lord in one step on the way to Calvary, one bearing of a tiny little wound, one little prick upon our forehead 
of one thorn, one little drop of blood spiritually given by us, which in time adds up to be our jewels in heaven. They are there for you to find. The wounds are there for you to embrace. The following of Christ is there for you to go after. You merely have to see it and seize it. May God bless you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.